Evening, Hope Church. It's a good morning this morning, wasn't it? God's a uh, saving. Whoa, is that me? God is a, a good. I'm not going to stop saying it. God is good. Yes, get down. I rebuke you. I open up to James 2, can you? We're not that kind of church. I open up to James 2 as we continue to preach expositorily through the Word of God. We're that kind of church, amen? Uh, this has been our series that James has uh, been leading us on, and he really is a, um, a straightforward, hard-hitting, uh, delivering it right to the chin kind of, uh, kind of apostle. Now, we, we use that word carefully because, as, uh, strictly speaking, James was not one of the 12 apostles, uh, but he was considered by Paul to be one of the little A apostles, one of those who were not Christ's inner 12 minus Judas, plus another one. He wasn't one of those 12 sent out. Uh, rather, he was Jesus' brother, younger brother. He was converted after Jesus' resurrection. That's when he first believed that Jesus really, truly was the Christ. He was God. He was his Savior. He is what he's going to call him in today's passage, the Lord of glory. He, he, he was converted a little bit later, but he was, was one of those uh, essential, fundamental um, building blocks in the church of Jerusalem. He had a lot of authority. We actually see in Acts chapter 15, when, it, when a council was called to sort out some, some uh, substantial issues and significant uh, uh, arguments that were going on in the day, James had the floor. He said, brothers, listen to me, and everybody just shut their mouths and listen to him. He's, he's that kind of guy. So, so while he's not one of the 12 apostles, he, he was still sent, and he was a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he had been, as we said, pastoring the Jerusalem church when the uh, uh, persecution broke out against the church under the hand of Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee and a preacher of the Jewish religion at that time, and he was persecuting, and the church was, was shattered in its locality, at least, in its physical unity. It was broken up and, and spread across the Roman Empire, but in its spiritual unity, it was held together. And so James is writing to very uh, many Christians who, who were Jewish ethnically and religiously Jewish, but were converted by the message preached of Jesus Christ, and then they had been spread by persecution, and all around the place they are undergoing all sorts of many types of trials, and we've seen that through the entirety of chapter 1. Trials, trials, trials that they're going through, trials that finances make worse, trials that temptations pop up through and uh, make a lot more difficult, and how we ought to be those listening to the Word of God, receiving the Word of God, and acting out the Word of God uh, as we hear it preached to us. But today, he's taken a turn, and this is a topic change. He's going to be addressing the great sin of partiality. Not really a word we use often, but, but we might use other words like, like prejudice, although that doesn't quite, quite capture it. Uh, prejudice is when you, you prejudge somebody. You see something, maybe it's their, 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 their dress, their uh, uh, headphone brand, their shoes, their car, their, their color of the skin, their language, their, their accent, something about them, and you judge them prior as having a certain uh, level of value in your heart. Well, that kind of gets at it. Partiality is, is really that we're treating people... Uh, uh, on, a, on a spectrum of love or on a spectrum of how we know we should treat them according to some kind of ulterior motive. So, so, so it really can apply to anything. Prejudice is quite close. But James is, is speaking to that sin in the Jewish community, the church, tonight. Really, the, the great sin, if we, can, if we can summarize what he will speak to this as, and we're going to see it in verse 5, is that key verse. The great sin of partiality is that it's not living like royalty. 
He wants Christians to live like royalty. And if it, at some point you, you, you hear that and you think, I, I don't think being impartial uh, is really going hand in hand with living like royalty. It feels like royal people trying to live like royals, trying to live the lifestyle of royalty. They're the ones who are going to be partial to people. But that's only if you're defining and thinking of royalty according to our worldly standards. If we define royalty as the Lord God of glory, Jesus Christ, come into flesh, lived the law, obeyed God in our place, died on the cross in our stead, had friends and brothers and sisters, even parents who were much lower than him in glory, and yet he, he related to them, and he gives his glory and his riches to any, when we define royalty that way, the way that the Bible wants us to define royalty, then, then you'll see that James wants us to live like royalty. Look at verse 5, which is going to be our, our central idea. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? This is the problem with their entire behavior, with their partiality. Today we might throw words around like, like racism or like uh, uh, prejudice against the poor or some kind of criticism or injustice towards people of different, different classes or backgrounds, whatever you'd want to throw it out there. James's big issue is that that is not living like Christian royalty. You are members of a race that have received a divine royal inheritance. The kingdom, you are heirs of the kingdom, rich in faith. And he says, has not God chosen the poor to do that? You are not acting like God. So before we, we start pulling that apart any further, let's read for ourselves chapter 2, verse 1 through the end of verse 13. It reads like this. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, oh, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. We expect God to bless us as this authoritative word is preached. Amen? 
<laughs> well, first, we, we really see, uh, don't, did, did you pick up on, on those themes, those Old Testament kind of vibes that you got through here? We've been calling James an Old Testament apostle. Or, uh, it's in the New Testament, but he, he goes Old Testament on, on these people. The Jews were constantly throughout their history having the prophets sent to them with the rebuke and with the, the heavy, scorning rebuke telling them that they were in sin largely. Much of their issues was how they were, they were being worldly. They were siding with the rich nations instead of God's law. They were, they were mistreating the poor. This was one of the constant themes, of course, through the, the book of Amos, that they would oppress the poor in order to build their social reputation and wealth. <coughs> this is no different in the people of God, that the church needs to be warned about it as well. And apparently these Jews, these ethnic Jews, still had some of that that blood running in them, that Old Testament sin still sticking around. In fact, uh, it's very likely that many of the people who were converted in the church of Jerusalem, not very likely, the Bible tells us, so it's true, they were converted out of the Pharisee tribe, like Paul. They were converted out of the, the Levitical priesthood, and we know from the Gospels that these men had been, had been in bed with the politicians. They had been corrupt. They had been, they had been funding their own lifestyle through sin and corruption like that. So these are people with a, with a background life of sin in financial corruption, in mistreating the poor, in cheating out widows. They have, they have large inheritances, many of them. And now, as we've seen, the persecution has swept. They've lost a lot. But many people still have this worldly temptation within their midst to prefer and to show preference to the rich and the reputable. So James, like an Old Testament prophet, will come here and show them how they are insulting God. They are acting against the edicts and the characteristics of God's divine kingdom. Look at verse 1 through 5. Five being our core text that we'll keep on coming back and looking at. But one through four, we'll read it again. He shows that <laughs> the first scene is that you're insulting God. There are all going to be ways that you insult God, he's, he's saying. But the first way that you insult God by your lifestyle is that you refuse to imitate him. Verse one, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Don't hold those two things in different hands. Partiality and the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are incompatible. Four, verse two, if a man, it's as if he's heard of this or, or he's speaking sort of proverbially like in the Old Testament and, and he's throwing out a, 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 um, a, 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 a made-up situation but one that will land home with them because, uh, because it's likely happened. He's likely heard reports of this. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing or if you have the KJV, gay raiment comes in, which is funny. Uh, uh, I think it's funny being in our sort of days because if a guy came in with a ring he was trying to flash around and very fine clothing, he'd get anything other than preferential treatment. Uh, but in his day, of course, this signet ring uh, was the sign of, of being in a class. It was the sign of being in a, from a royal family, something impressive about them. And they would, of course, show their wealth through their clothing. This was the, this was the age that they lived in. It says, he comes in and you give to him, verse 3, you give him attention and you say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you go stand over there. You go sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? 
So already we start seeing that, that James is pulling out a, a very likely actual occurrence that is going on in their churches that he's heard reports of, or maybe that he had seen in actuality while the church was still gathering in Jerusalem. <laughs> and, and, and what makes this makes it so much more than just about riches, right? Because maybe in our day we want to say, I don't, I, I don't really do that. Somebody comes in in fine clothing. I'm not, I'm not quick to, to give them all the attention. We don't have a, a special seat here somewhere raised up where, where the person with the, the Gucci sandals or whatever people wear, I have no clue. I don't even know what Gucci is. I heard it's a word. I'll use it. Uh, you know, that they go and sit in that seat. Now, now, before we go and try and get ourselves off the hook here and say, we just don't do that, that is because we do not have a, a society where your class or value, or standing in society is immediately uh, 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 apparent by your clothing, right? Isn't it true that the dodgy car salesman who's currently in thousands of dollars of debt may be wearing a suit that looks just as nice as the prime minister who's, who's walking past? Or you, you might even know somebody who is really, they have no business spending as much money on their clothes as they do. They've got all of the brands, but, but they're still asking you for money for KFC or for Maccas. They're still, still asking you to put out for that. And then you know other people who are really quite wealthy, and this is usually, you know, this is like the, the Steve Jobs of our day. They still just wear Crocs and tuck in their short shirt into their, into their three-quarter khaki pants, and they have one of those Velcro things to hold their phone. Say, so why? You're rich. Please splurge on your clothing. Right, we, have, we have a society where the clothing doesn't really scream anything about, about their riches. But in, in James's day, of course, this was not the case. If you could afford to have your clothes washed, and this is where the luxury comes in. This is still the case for a lot of college guys, I know. But if you could afford both a second pair of clothing and somebody to wash your clothes while you change those, those clothes day to day, you're pretty rich. Most of the poor people in the day were wearing, like James says, shabby clothing because you can't afford to go and get it washed. And, and if you do, it's, it's the same thing as your bath. You go down into the lake, you give yourself a wash. But goodness me, the, the rivers were by no means sterile in these parts of the world. And so, so it's very apparent by what you see, uh, you can tell how much this person is worth, how much they can offer you, how much they might have in their bank account. And this is why it starts coming down to, <coughs> to apply to us. It's not just how much, how rich or, or, or extravagant their clothing. Like I said, we might even be, be likely to avoid somebody who's in some kind of purple, shining, gold suit with sequins on it. And yet, where it gets to us is where we give advantages or where we give partial treatment or where we give preferential treatment. And here he says, pay attention to People that we know, maybe from a, from a bit of gossip that we've heard, maybe because we've, we've started asking them what they do, and we start realizing that they have wealth. You couldn't tell from the Velcro phone holder. They've still got a Nokia, but they have wealth. And you find this out, and isn't it true that in each one of us, uh, just a little something inside goes, it'd, it's your brotherly duty to help them steward their money generously. Okay, so you need to be around them, what we might call the splash zone. You just, you just know if they're rich, they're hopefully generous. Let's try and get near enough to them so that as they, they drop some coins off the table, as, as their money becomes overflowing, as they start buying people drinks, you're there. This is, how we, this is how we might give more attention to somebody we know to have wealth. Or maybe it's just that they have connections. They have connections with people that are pretty high up, that are pretty impressive. Maybe it's political, maybe, and this is common in church circles, maybe they know somebody who, who might be a cool speaker. Maybe they know somebody who wrote a book. And, and so you start making connections and networking, this is what pastors love to say, networking, had a networking lunch, like six of them a week, 
networking lunch, download a sermon, but have 10 networking lunches with people. Uh, and, 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 you know, anyway, I'm ranting. Um, <coughs> and, and so, you know, you, you connect, you try and, try and build yourself so that other people become what? Platforms for you to climb up on top of, and then you'll reach to the next guy and try and make a connection there. This is, this is too often how, how humans, even those saved by Christ, prefer, uh, uh, choose to act. It might be that we can simply tell that they're influential, and we can see ourselves in some way, maybe a couple of years down the track, I'll walk the dog for them, I'll babysit the kids, I'll, I'll look after the house, I'll polish their shoes when they come in, I'll, I'll, I'll show them the ropes around here, I'll be their best friend because I can tell that eventually I will have some kind of benefit coming from them in the future if I am close to them. What James is asking us, demanding us and rebuking us to see is that this is not how God acted. God in the flesh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, God, our Father, who chose people for salvation, did not make sure that he filled the list of his elect, that he filled his church with the highest, the richest, the most influential, and the most connected first, got all of those people saved, and then let in a couple of the, of the poor people. Doesn't First Corinthians tell us, consider your calling, brothers? Are not most of you the poor losers of society? And if you don't amen it, it's just an insult to you, because Paul thinks that way of you. Isn't, isn't it true that most of us aren't going to be written down in the top hundred of Forbes as something, something. The, 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 most of us aren't going to be the most influential, the richest, the most powerful. Now, there's nothing against riches in terms of salvation, as if God doesn't save influential people. He saved Paul, saved Theophilus, he saved others in Herod's own household. But the point is that if God thought like us, he would have got all of the rich in before he ever looked to the poor. And he did not act that way. God has chosen, and even in the life of Christ, he identified with the lowly, poor humans intentionally to send a message of how counter he was to the, to the culture of the day. And all throughout the Old Testament, God had, God had commanded his people to protect and look out for the lowly and the poor. So we can actually see in Le Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, God says this, he commands them at the beginning of their nation. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial. There's the word of our day. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. This is very much pulling from the very same themes that James is saying today. He's going Old Testament. In fact, this is the same passage in Leviticus that the law is quoted from that he will mention later in our text. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do we love one another? How do I love my neighbor as myself? What's a good proof I'm actually doing that as an Old Testament Israelite, as a New Testament Jew, or as a Gentile Christian? I show no partiality as I judge people, whether it's in employment, whether it's in jobs, whether it's in church discipline, whether it's in choosing friends, whether it's, it's in who I give and help mercy through, we show no partiality. We don't prefer the great or be partial to the poor. God, again, commanded them like this in Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. 
He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. That's, that's the person who doesn't belong to you but is spending time in the Jewish region before they go on. They're, they're usually poorer, they're usually nomads, something like that. The person with no home, God loves that person, Israel. Giving him food and clothing. So verse 19, love the sojourner, therefore, for you yourselves were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And, and, and the, 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 the question then you're drawn to ask is, and did God not show love to you as sojourners in Egypt? So God has always commanded that his people be loving and do, not to be preferential towards the rich. And likewise, we have been commanded not to do so in our own midst. We have, we've been commanded to have God's heart, for we cannot say we are expressing God's heart when we value people based on their money, on their influence, or on their value in society. That's just anti-Christian and it will not work. So first, uh, first off, the number one way that we insult God by partiality is because well, we insult him by refusing to imitate him. He showed love to the poor, us. We will not do the same. We will climb the kingdom ladder. Well, secondly, we see, look at, look at verse 5. As we pick up halfway through verse 5 will be our main point. Verse 5 starts this way. Listen, my beloved brothers. Listen. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Heirs of the kingdom. So he's saying that, that not only is he uh, 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 rebuking them, commanding them, saying you're not being like Christ, like, like God who loved the poor, but, but then he's also reminding them what God did to them. This is, a, this is a double-edged sword. Be like God who loves the poor, but remember what he did to you, and, and if you value that, you won't go requiring, desiring, seeking after the riches of the world. What is it that if we recognize we've had in Christ will make us stop wanting the riches, the value, the reputation, the networking, the, the reputation of the world? It's if we recognize that we are rich in faith that he says there in verse 5. He's chosen us, who are poor, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Our inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ is the kingdom of God. What he has given to us is our soul back from death. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus said himself, What good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? Desiring riches, desiring power, desiring influence is a, an immediate sign that you have forgotten how wealthy and rich you are in the Lord Jesus. For you have your soul as a Christian. He, he spared it. He saved it. He bled it for it and gave it back to you. You have your soul, you have eternal life, you have an inheritance in the kingdom, you have riches beside for eternity, therefore do not desire the riches that other people want. Imagine if you saw a royalty begging for supplies. If you're about to go into maybe IGA, some, some rural town, or, or maybe inner city urban, you're about to go into a little, little Coles Express in the, in the city, and out, outside, sitting at the door, is some, some royal member of the, the English family, right? 
You got, you got Prince Harry sitting there just begging you for a couple of bucks so he can, he can buy some smokes or so he can get a bus back home. And, and you've just watched a, maybe read an article or watched a, an Oprah interview or you read Woman's Weekly. Don't repent if you do. But if you, you know, and, and it just, it's telling you that, that the royal family is just as the best it's ever been. It's, it's money is flowing in. It's got, it's got supplies and resources, etc., etc. And then you see a, a royal member of the family sitting here begging for goods. You'd immediately start asking questions. Imagine also if maybe, maybe one of them knocked on your house, tried to, tried to get you into one of those multi-level marketing schemes, selling oils, things like that. They're, they're trying to get you in there. You go, I, business must not be good in the family. If I'm reading that you're all so very wealthy and here you are, begging from, from people like me with, with money, you don't, even, you don't even know what a $50 note is. You're dealing crowns and gold and things like that. Well, so it is. If Christians... Claiming to be rich in Christ with eternal wealth, now start buck, uh, 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 buffing up against people, begging for, trying to manipulate out of them, preferring other people, giving attention to them so that we can get some of their, their plastic and metal coins in our pockets. We are, we are blaspheming. We are insulting the riches of the kingdom that Christ himself has established. We insult God by disregarding the riches he has given to us. Too easily pleased is what C.S. Lewis called this. He says, if we had a rightly aligned heart towards what is good, towards what is desirable, truly, we wouldn't want the things that we so often want in this world. Listen to what he says. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition I'll throw in, and money when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't even imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This is Lewis's diagnosis. I think that he, he is no doubt speaking of the, the unsaved. So, so isn't it even more uh, of a rebuke against us, of, of, a, of a judgment against us when we find that same mentality in the church? We have this infinite joy in Jesus Christ. We have the holiday by the sea in the spiritual ocean liner. We have everything. And yet we bully a kid to try and give us some of his mud pie. We devalue the riches of the kingdom when we try, when we show partiality to the rich, the powerful, the influential, the wealthy. Let's go on. Number three, <coughs> partiality insults God by aligning with his enemies instead of the king. This one is speaking to the broader Christian culture, uh, more, more of a societal level. Maybe this is not happening individuals to individuals, but there is a tendency in the church, James is recognizing, to give preferential treatment, to seek the attention of those people who are enemies of God. Let's read at the end of verse 5. He has made rich and heirs of the kingdom, those which he has uh, sorry, heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him, verse six, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Are not they the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? What's going on in, in, in not just individual relationships, but, but really in more of the society at large, the Jews who are not converted, 
remained as what would be called in, uh, in Revelation, synagogues of Satan, those who had rejected their Christ, who were lined up for judgment under God's wrath. Those Jews had started to persecute, like Saul before he was converted, persecute the other, Christi- uh, the other Jews who are now Christians, and so were, of course, the other Gentiles, the, the lands of the Gentiles that they were running to to flee from persecution. They were being taken advantage of. There was, there was some level that this would be the, the religious persecution. And so by this way, they are, as James says, blaspheming the honorable name by which you were called. That's what they're doing. They're dishonoring, blaspheming, calling down Christ, the one who they, by the way, crucified. Should have been a clue. They weren't going to be on your side, but you're pretty thick, so let's move on. And then James says, and also these other people who, who are just utilizing, manipulating the fact that you're poor in society. You're a person who is in the lower class, much more able to be taken advantage of. The judge is not going to give in to your bribe. You have nothing to bring, but, but he'll listen to me. I'll, I'll throw some coins under the table and we'll tip the scales in my favor. This is, this is a universal issue of corruption that happens in every legal system, in every society where there are not good and just and moral people bending the knee to the Lord Jesus. And so these Christians have been taken advantage of. They were being uh, abused, he says here. These are the ones who are abusing you, oppressing you, and dragging you into court. And he says, you guys have this, this uh, 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 commentator Moo said, they have a fawning, servile spirit to those who hate them. It's just, you know, we've called James the Clint Eastwood of the Apostles. Clint Eastwood, James would just snarl at this. He'd just spit at this. He'd get pathetic. Look at you fawning, trying to crawl up to the feet of the very people who are abusing you and oppressing you. This is what, in psychology, they call battered wife syndrome. The very person who abused you, who made you run away, who made you flee them because they are unsafe, you, you start mentally just going back to them. You go, but they have what I want. They have what I need. I guess it was just one time. They're not all that bad. Uh, they have something that I desire, and so, so a wife will go back. This is battered wife syndrome. It's a syndrome. And James is diagnosing the church with it. They abuse you. They blaspheme your Lord God. They, they oppress you. They're, they're, they're stripping your Christian brothers and sisters bare of all of their wealth in court. And you keep fawning up to them to try and get a seat at the table. This is what we might call, if we can make a, a modern day application, because maybe some of that is a, bit, a little bit removed from us, you know, non-Christians, taking all the Christians' money, abusing us, and you, you rubbing up to try and get money from them. Maybe that sounds a little bit far-fetched. Maybe what we can speak of is the heresy of the cool table. But in the Christian life, we have an addiction to that which is cool. We just want to be liked. In fact, we want to be liked so much so that we are willing to compromise on those things much more Preferable, much more Christ-like. This is, this is just the case with much of, of we might even look at like evangelical leaders, much of, much of the broad evangelical church. They have spent years and much energy, much money to be considered as much as they can be cool by the social elites. What's your temptation though? You've got friends, maybe it's your workmates, and you just keep telling yourself, if I buddy-buddy up to them enough, with enough compromise on my faith, on my convictions, on what I talk about, on giving my two cents worth in the conversation I'm in, I'm, I'm going to compromise on all of that, and one day they're just going to break under my niceness and say, finally, tell us all of the controversial things you believe, and we will believe it too. You are so honorable and so Christ-like. That, that's what we think. 
You work yourself, you weasel yourself, you, you oil yourself up enough, you will slip into the cool table, find yourself in the center, and everybody's going to listen to you. Not true. It's actually funny how often I've heard, like, like as a pastor, the, the advice that we need to be, as Hope Church, just more and more careful, gentle, and uh, how we speak about certain issues and certain doctrines and certain uh, cultural issues of the day with this piece of advice because you don't want to lose a seat at the table. Here's the advice. Tom, elders of Hope Church, if you guys are just too outspoken, too brash, too, too, too not culturally sensitive, or you might use the word contextualization or whatever they want to say, people won't even give you the ear to listen. You won't even sort of get into the table to then be a part of the discussion in the broader societal, multi-cultural, uh, uh, multi-religious sort of scene. It, which I don't care about. I don't want to sit at that table, first of all. Second of all, uh, the, the idea is that you just compromise, you keep your mouth shut about almost everything you believe in until you're asked to speak, and then being at the cool table, you can have a chance to influence the world for Christ. And we just don't believe it. I love what C.R. Wiley said. He says, do you want to be cancel-proof? Right? That's what everyone's afraid of. Don't get cancelled. Don't say something that just gets you shot off of your out of your friendship groups. He says, do you want to be cancel-proof? Cancel yourself first. Say to yourself, I don't need the cool table to survive. I don't even like those people. Why should I care what they think about me? That is the first step. Or Michael Foster went one step further and say, if you don't get a seat at the table in society, build your own table. That's what we ought to be doing. Building our own culture. Building our own table around which we have Christ-centered conversations. And the temptation to, to, to avoid doing so is because at the cool table, there's already, already cultural, cultural sway and, and weight and gravitas and, and coolness and, and reputation and money. And they've got the funding and the programs and the websites. And we just got to say, we, we don't care. We won't compromise. And friends, some of us need to repent of our cowardliness in conversations where we're willing to compromise, soften things up, accommodating people for the doctrines that we believe in so that we can be liked by them. But friends, we need to love our neighbors, our unsaved neighbors, more than to compromise what we believe for them. Instead, we need to love them so much as to speak candidly as friends not to be jerks, and, and we should note also here that, that James is by no means uh, commanding a mistreatment or a hatred of the rich, but rather going to the sins of the Christians, saying stop giving them preferential treatment. Just treat them the same as you treat the poor, or treat the poor the same as you treat the rich. This is a temptation for every age. Whatever it is that we want from the, the wealthy or the cool or the reputable or those with networking connections, whatever it is, we need to stop ourselves and remind ourselves. It is these very people that we're trying to buddy up to who for years and generations have been earning the judgment of God by their blasphemy, their godlessness, their antichrist agenda in, in, in politics, schools, uh, whatever else you want to take. If these people have been so hell-bent against the Lord Christ, why would we buddy up to them without anything else than a call to repentance? We don't need their table. We need to build our own. <clears throat> James doesn't want them to grovel because that, again, is not what royalty do. People who know they are royalty live loyally to the king. And then we can look at the end of verse 5 all the way, uh, oh, sorry, we'll skip to verse 8 and then go all the way to verse 13. <coughs> 
This is how we insult God. Our partiality insults God by not living as kingdom people. Verse 5 ends this way. The rich in faith and the heirs of the kingdom, so you're royalty, you are kingdom people, which he has promised to those who love him. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you are partial, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. He said, do not commit adultery. He also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. (laughs) What we need to realize as Christians is that we have received a royal status in a kingdom that is not of this world. You have received a kingdom status, but it is a kingdom status of a kingdom that is not of this world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter calls us a royal priesthood as the church. We have royalty on the king's side. We have priesthood and access to God on the priesthood side. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says that we were raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. He's seated on a throne. Our seating with Christ is a royal status. Revelation 1 chapter, uh, verse 5 and 6 says this, To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. We are royalty in Christ's kingdom by his blood. Part of the inheritance that we have received then is, is all of the blessings of the Christian life, that we, are, we have the Holy Spirit. We are given eternal life so that we can never fall away. We are called into the royal halls of heaven when we die. We have the privilege of prayer to the throne of God now. All of that is given to us along with the royal law which obligates us to obedience. We have been given the royal law, which he calls that. I love that he calls the law, the royal law. He loves the law, has no bad feelings about the law of God. He says, if you fulfill that royal law according to scripture. What is the royal law? What we should realize is the royal law, really just a a catchphrase for all of the laws that Christians need to obey. We can take up in there uh, the 10 commandments in their entirety, every one of them. And all of the commands of Jesus and his apostles as exemplified through the lives of Jesus and his apostles. You take that, any New Testament commands and the Ten Commandments and any way that Jesus and the apostles teach and exemplify the Christian life, that's the royal law. And we can summarize the royal law like Jesus does, like James does in verse 8 from Leviticus 19 verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, verse 9 will then say, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law. We're going to take that to mean the royal law. All of the commands Christians are to get in this royal kingdom that you're in as royal people, given a royal law which obligates you to Christ-like obedience. If you show partiality, you are actually convicted by the law of royal living. You're convicted by the royal law, not because in the Ten Commandments there is a phrase that says, do not 
commit impartiality, though we can draw a, a pretty logical line there through other things like coveting and the desire to steal, etc., etc., and maybe lying, which can be involved in manipulation. Yes, we can draw our lines there, but, but, but James doesn't go there. He doesn't go and find a law like we did in Leviticus or Deuteronomy, which says, don't be partial. He says that if you are being partial to people based on what they can give you, you're not loving your neighbor. And if you're not loving your neighbor, you're breaking the whole royal law. Because, and this is the flaw of his argumentation, because the one God who gave the command, don't commit adultery, doesn't like that. Somebody put on our alarm. <clears throat> the one God who said, don't commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So we know how this works. He just he uses the, the hilarious example of somebody who doesn't commit adultery but does murder. Like, and they think they're pretty good. Oh, I, I don't kill anybody on Tuesdays. My Tuesdays are, are pretty high up there. Yeah, I don't commit adultery. I'm a pretty good person. Mind the, body of the, the pile of bodies in my freezer. That's irrelevant. Now he's saying the overarching principle is love. Impartiality is not loving. Therefore, to be impartial is to break all of them. But this other connection that he makes here is it's not so much, I'm going to be careful how we say this, it's not so much the specific sin addressed in the command, but the fact that behind the command stands the one God. So that the law is like a mirror. We, we said last week how the law is like a mirror in that it's supposed to show us what to do. Well, the law is like a mirror in another way. That if your kid comes in and, and you've heard a large crack just moments before, or your younger brother or your housemate or whatever it is, and you ask them, D did you just break that mirror? And they say, no, I didn't. I only shattered the top right-hand corner. The mirror itself is A-OK. -okay. You will start drawing connections of logic with them, maybe even show them that mirror with their skull and show them, it doesn't matter where you break it. If you break it, it's broken. This is, how, this is how glass works, and, and so it is with the law. You can't just break one of them and claim the rest are intact. You can't smash a hole in one side of the window and claim that the window in general is just fine, just, just mind the duct tape hole in the top. Because, and here's another analogy, the, the issue is not just what the law says. It's not a person on its own. It's not a realm of obedience on its own. It is given and represents the God who is behind it. You come over to maybe maybe your grandmother's, maybe a neighbor's house, maybe a friend from church, and they've got some, some beautiful 10-piece antique crockery that they show to you, and they say, please don't break any of them. You can have a look at them. Please don't break any of them. And you take one of them, and you smash it, and stamp it into their shag carpet, and then give it back to them and say, they're all okay. You cannot claim a 9 out of 10 mark here. You get 0 out of 10 because the issue is not just which ones you left intact, but the relationship between you and the person who gave it. This is what James is saying. The one God is standing behind the law that says, don't commit adultery. The one God is standing behind the law that says, do not murder. The one God is standing behind the command to not be partial and not be unloving. Therefore, whichever one you break, it's not just about the law. It's primarily about the God behind it, who we blaspheme, who we offend, and who we sin against. That's his logic. And therefore, we should make no excuses for ourselves in saying what we do or don't keep, James's issue is that being royal citizens, we are obligated to keep the royal law of love as Jesus has handed it down. And if we do not, then we are blaspheming that God who has ushered us into his kingdom. 
Therefore, his warning comes. And, and look at verse 12. <clears throat> verse 12 says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. There's a very common understanding, misunderstanding we'll call it, in the Christian church that because Jesus was judged for you, you won't have to receive any level of judgment. Now that is true in one sense, that your sin has been judged 2,000 years ago on the cross of Jesus. Your sin has been judged and you will never give account. Let's just hear a hallelujah for this. You will never give account or give any uh, due payment for any of the sin you've ever committed. Amen? That's good. That's good news. You don't have to give an account for any of your sin in terms of its punishment. And yet we are held accountable for the good that we do and we miss out on blessings for what good we did not do, for what sin we have committed. There is a judgment day for Christians. This is, a, this is what we see even in the book of Revelation. Where, and Jesus speaks of it in Matthew 25. When people are separated, goats and sheep, the goats being the unsaved, are ushered into hell. The sheep are ushered into heaven and on their way they go past the judgment seat of Christ where we receive blessings for our behavior. We receive blessings for our good deeds and we miss out on blessings eternally lasting if we lived in an incompatible way with the Christian life. So James is saying here, he's not anti-grace, he's just anti-law haters. If you are one who has been saved by the Lord Jesus and ushered into this royal kingdom of eternal life, then you will be held accountable to how you fulfilled the law of the kingdom, the law of love given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 13, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown mercy, shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Like some Old Testament passages you might pull out, that's pretty hard to understand at first reading. There's lots of different ways you you might be able to take it, and and I'll give you my crack. I think that what he's saying is, it's pretty clear the first half, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. He heard this from his big brother Jesus. Do you remember the parable that he told about the the young man forgiven of quite a debt by the king? an enormous debt by the king that he was never going to be able to pay off. He was was forgiven of that debt and then went and strangled a guy over a few dollars. He says, that man who has shown no mercy, he will have his mercy taken from him, thrown into prison until he pays it back. Here's the idea of those who live in mercilessness, those who live in a constant state of partiality. The poor, stuff them. You're going to be able to do nothing for me in my social clout? Stuff you. Those people who can't help me out with my reputation, give you no attention. I won't sit down with you at church. I won't invite you over to my house for fellowship. I won't sit down and try and help you with your sins. You're a nobody. I'm looking for the important people. If that is how we live, even while claiming to be in the kingdom of Christ, those people will have no mercy when they are judged by the Lord Jesus, for they have proven themselves outside of the kingdom. Those who show no mercy show themselves to not have received Christ's mercy. Verse 13 at the end, he says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. There is only one way outside. There is only one way to be saved from the judgment of God. The only thing that overcomes or that provides an ark of safety or that opens a doorway to salvation away from the judgment of God is the mercy of God. Mercy, the only thing that can overcome or make a way through the judgment of God. 
And so you see his logic. Only those who have received God's mercy in Christ will be those who escape the judgment. But the other part of that is that only those who are showing themselves to have received that mercy through showing mercy themselves will be counted as just on that day. Be careful how we think of this so we don't make it legalism, like I'll show enough mercy and then I'll be forgiven. But rather, as he will pick up next week in his address of faith without works being dead, he is commanding that anyone who claims to have received mercy must be those showing mercy, for we will be judged according to God's holy law, his royal law, the life-giving, freedom-giving law. And in closing, our, our question simply needs to be, how can we, how have we received mercy? It is only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Revelation 1 told us, didn't we read it in, in verse 5 and 6 of that glorious book? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. That Lord Jesus Christ, who has loved us and bled for us, has by his blood on the cross washed us free from our sin. That Jesus has ransomed us from our inheritance of hell. He has ushered us into the kingdom and has purchased for us blessings in this life and eternal life in the world to come. That is our only hope at receiving mercy, is holding fast to the rock of Jesus Christ. But anyone who claims the name of Jesus, let us also fulfill the law of love like him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. You've, you've blessed us with safety in getting here tonight amidst the storm. We thank you for your control and your sovereignty over the natural realm. Lord, we bend our knee to you. We know that you are sovereign and that we are not. We do pray, Lord, for safety over people as they travel home. And Lord, would you show mercy to people in our city who have very little to go by in these storm seasons, those who have lost much even recently, those who, who, are, who are helpless against rising waters. Lord, would you be merciful to them and, and would, you, would you hold back your reign? But Lord, as we ask that you would show mercy, would you also fill our hearts with mercy? Would you give, make us to be the hands and feet of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth and give us generosity? Give us open homes. Give us our hearts to help those who are in need. And Lord, would you, would you open up opportunities for us to do that? Father God, I pray that this would characterize us as Christians, as we are those who have been judged with mercy. We've been given mercy by the God who, who is high above us, who is far beyond our, our status. Lord, may we be those who, dis, who do not consider status except for the status which calls us royalty in the kingdom of God. And if royalty, then servants. And if kings and queens, then slaves to all. Father God, make this... Make this our identifying mark that we are servants, that we love the Lord Jesus Christ and live like him. For any, Lord God, who are still under your judgment tonight, those who have played the Christian game for a while and yet themselves are merciless, self-centered, moping around in their own sin and powerlessness, who have not lived in the, in the liberty and the freedom of the royal law, that you have not freed from their sins by your blood. Lord, those people, would you give to them mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight? Would you take them away from judgment? Would you take them away from their sin and give to them eternal life? For it is in the name of the glorious and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ that we pray all of these things. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.